Back in May 2021, when the world was a different place, when President Biden assured us that the Afghan government would stay, and would stay strong, we invited Professor Amanda Demmer to speak about refugees. She had just finished a book titled After Saigon's Fall, Refugees and U.S.-Vietnamese Relations, 1975-2000. In producing that episode in May, we were impressioned. We didn't know that Kabul would fall, and we certainly didn't know that it would fall so swiftly. Regardless, Professor Demmer's lessons about the fall of Saigon and the sudden evacuation of our Vietnamese allies are now, in August of 2021, highly relevant to Afghan refugees. In this episode, which was recorded in May, Professor Demmer tells us a little about the history of Vietnam and a whole lot about Vietnamese refugees in America. Did you know that when the U.S. evacuated Vietnam in April 1975, about 130,000 Vietnamese evacuated along with U.S. military personnel? And did you know that over time, more than 1 million Vietnamese refugees settled in America? Hey there, news peelers. Today is May 28, 2021, and this is Adele with the Peel.News. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh, sometimes it offends, and sometimes it just it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. On April 14th of this year, President Biden addressed the nation, stating, No one wants to say that we should be in Afghanistan forever, but they insist now is not the right moment to leave. He then asked the following rhetorical questions. So when will be the right moment to leave? One more year? Two more years? Ten more years? According to the New York Times, the Pentagon and the intelligence community feared that once we leave, Kabul will quickly fall to the Taliban, the way Saigon fell to the North Vietnamese two years after we left Vietnam. The New York Times questions if our nation will experience a Vietnam syndrome, which it defines as a period in which Americans were leery of foreign interventions. In a recent article, the Wall Street Journal featured the story of Don Nicholas a Marine guard who was at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon when that city fell in 1975 to the North Vietnamese. Amazingly, decades later, that very same U.S. Marine served in Afghanistan in the Army as a patrolling foot soldier 
Mr. Nicholas is concerned about the unsatisfying conclusion of the Afghanistan war and the Afghan allies that were leaving behind there. He stated, the same thing that happened in Vietnam is happening here. To better understand what happened in the Vietnam War and its aftermath, we spoke with Ms. Amanda Demmer, an assistant professor of history at Virginia Tech. Her research and teachings are focused on the boundaries between war and peace in American history. My conversation with Professor Demmer turned out to be quite timely because Cambridge University Press just published her book titled After Saigon's Fall, Refugees and U.S.-Vietnamese Relations, 1975-2000. to Links to Professor Demmer's academic homepage, which include her many publications and awards and honors, as well as a link to her recent book, are provided in the detailed caption of this podcast episode. So stay with me as Professor Demmer and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Demmer, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So, President Biden is ending our military involvement in Afghanistan. And everyone's drawing analogies to the Vietnam War, right? Mm -hmm. We could get into whether or not those analogies are appropriate. Do they make sense or not? But before we do that, I have a different question altogether, sort of a foundational question, if you will. There was no Pearl Harbor or 9-11-like event before Vietnam. The French left, and we got sucked into that long war. How did that happen? What's, what's the history behind that? It's a great question, a very important question, um, one I could go on about for quite a bit. Um, but, so, um, <laughs> several episodes, several episodes. Several episodes, yes. Um, one interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people know is that um, during World War II, um, the United States was actually allied with Ho Chi Minh. Um, the OSS. Oh, I'm sorry. The U.S. was allied with Ho Chi Minh? Yes. Um, so the precursor to the CIA, the OSS had, um, I don't want to oversell it, you know, it, it wasn't extensive, but they did sure. have contacts with Ho Chi Minh, there were some connections, um, some mutual support, the United States especially wanted um, assistance if any of our pilots got downed um, in, in the Pacific area. Um, but yeah, so they start out as allies and the Vietnamese declaration of independence starts quoting our declaration of independence. What, uh, t tell our listeners what declaration, declaration of independence from whom? Um, from Ho Chi Minh, um, in 1945, declaring Vietnamese independence uh to the world this starts with uh directly quoting the united states are they declaring their independence from a, a colonial power was 
Yes, so Vietnam um, has a long colonial history, uh, was a colony of China for quite a long time. And oh, then, I didn't know that. Interesting. And of France, um, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, collectively known um, to the French as French Indochina. During um, World War II, uh, the Japanese invade, and so there's the French are still nominally in power, but the Japanese mm -hmm. really have control. Mm -hmm. And so Ho Chi Minh sort of seizes the moment in 1945 when there's um, sort of this vacuum of colonial power. The Japanese are defeated. The French are suffering mightily at home. Um, and so he asserts... Post-World War II? Yes, 1945. Um, Vietnamese independence quoting the U.S. declaration, sort of reaching out very obviously. That's to great. The United That's States. awesome. Yeah. Um, so needless to say, that does not work out. Um, the French, uh, as part of their rebuilding after World War II, um, consider the empire to be crucial to their sort of um, uh, reimagining themselves uh, as a world power, right? The French are embarrassed pretty mightily uh, during World War II. Because um, of their so defeat, they, yeah. Right. So um, this becomes important, especially for uh, Charles de Gaulle's vision of France after World War II. And so um, there's this sort of moment where the United States is just sort of watching and seeing what's happening, um, but especially with fears of communism. Um this, you know, with the rise of the Cold War, this becomes uh, hugely consequential. And so the United States backs France in its attempt to reclaim um, Vietnam and the rest of the, the peninsula as colonies. And wait, so wait, wait. We, we, we go to a war with Britain after we declare our independence. Yes. Now, here we are helping another colonial power to subdue. <laughs> Yes, oh, precisely. Wow. Um, and Isn't so that an that's, irony? Yeah, so that does not involve um, U.S. ground troops, but it does involve significant funds. The U.S. pays uh, by the peak of the, that conflict. The United States is paying for 80% of the French war effort. So oh, wow. Really, yes. And and sending, you know, material and, and so on and so forth. So, um, so the United States why Vietnam or, or how does it get dragged in is, is slow and over time. And, um, but uh, when there's sort of the decisive moment for that uh, French Indochina war, what some call the first Indochina war, um, there's a standoff at Dien Bien Phu uh, where uh, there's sort of, it's very, becomes very clear that um, the Vietnamese are going to win. And uh, there's this moment uh, when the United States has to decide what to do, President Eisenhower is not willing to intervene without uh, sort of a broader coalition that support international coalition similar to like World War II or Korea or something like that, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Well, this is 1954, and so the armistice in Korea is just a year old. Many people mm -hmm. don't think that's going to hold, and so um, there are. Those in the U.S. political system, uh, a young Richard Nixon among them, thinks that the United States <laughs> should get involved in and should oh boy. Um, send troops, but that that does not happen at that moment. But so, what Eisenhower um, does do eventually is send advisors, and as I'm sure the listeners know, those advisors become more numerous. They become they increasingly um, participate in. Uh, 
actions that um, we might question that label advisory. Um, and then certainly by the time we get to JFK, JFK ramps up the number of men. Uh, there's this very aptly named operation in 1962, Operation Beef Up, right? So more men, more money, more everything. Um, but it's a little does, descriptive. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but he does, you know, um, does not make the the critical step of sending um, combat actual ground troops um, that are not just labeled advisors. Um, and so that is a decision LBJ will make. But this, this so, long story is certainly complicated. So we have the Cold it, it War. Exactly. really is. Which So we have these advisors that are more than paper pushers and, you know, uh, they, they, they roll up their sleeves to some mm -hmm. extent, right? Mm -hmm. You said fear of communism. Just define that a little bit. Are we talking red China communism or... Soviet communism or both? Yeah. So um, I think in understanding how all of this unfolds, a really, really crucial moment is 1949. And in 1949, two sort of systemic ripples are um, happen geopolitically. And the first is that Mao is victorious in the Chinese yeah. Civil War. And so we have one of the most populous countries in the world, a country which FDR had hoped would be one of the four policemen, right, in the post-World War II world, uh, is now, as Americans would say, fallen to communism. Uh, and that same year, the Soviets have their first successful test of a nuclear bomb. And oh um, the United States, which, of course, had a monopoly on this at the end of mm -hmm. World War II, they knew they were trying, uh, but they had estimated it would take the Soviets at least 10 years to get that capability. So from Hiroshima in 1945, am I saying that correctly? Yes. 1945 to 1949, that's four years. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. So the, these fear. two I, I see what you mean, fear events, of communism, yeah. Right, happen so close to one another. And so it just ratchets up the panic in Washington um, and uh, through a classified, but, you know, we now have it, um, document called NSC 68, very sort of, not a descriptive title, but no. nevertheless, <laughs> a very consequential document um, is when um, uh, Truman greenlights this massive, massive defense spending and buildup um, in what was still then um peacetime, which is which was a huge aberration from the long history of massive demobilization after wars throughout American history, the long standing fear of a standing army. Um, and so um, that goes back to World War One and all the previous wars. We didn't want a standing army. Here well, that we goes are. back to the American Revolution. Exactly. Right? Yeah, get Here the we red are. Coats out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They had the red coats out and, you know, put away your guns as far as for the army is concerned. Here we are. We finish a war, World War Two. And there's this real fear and Truman sort of ups our military capabilities and resources. Well, and it sits on his desk for a little bit. He <laughs> he understands that this is a major thing. Um, and then with um, the uh, kickoff to the war in Korea, um, mm -hmm. Dean Acheson remarks that, quote, Korea came along and saved us, right? That this was how to justify this to the American people. So Wait, you can't think, leave me that Dean Acheson said Korea came and saved us. Yes, in, in terms of selling this massive oh, I see, defense so. spending oh, to the I American love that. people. Because without the war in Korea, right, yeah, that's hard yeah. to explain. Um, yeah. But yeah, so um, 
the Cold War, and I think it's often distilled into a bipolar U.S. and Soviets. Uh-huh. The Chinese yeah. are there right from the beginning, exactly. and of course, especially in Asia, they really loom large. So I think it has to be both um, um, in terms of communism. And so there's these big structural sort of ideological things like the Cold War, and then sort of the individual personalities of the U.S. presidents and um, this idea of credibility. Um, Fred Logoval has this great book called Choosing War, where he talks about how LBJ, he argues, still had a choice, could have not escalated the war, could have made a different choice, but made the choice that he did. And that um, this was uh, a choice he made. And as his predecessors were making before him, largely about credibility the United States, which it had started to sink so much money, so much support, and therefore kind of reputation mm-hmm. into South Vietnam survival, um, that it leaders were reluctant to walk away. Um, and that for LBJ, especially, Logoval argues this was very personal. There is this um, exchange uh, with uh, the press corps at one point where they ask LBJ, why is the United States in Vietnam? And LBJ unzips his trousers. Oh. And exposes himself and says, this is why. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, we're going to yeah. get to that. Why don't we take yeah. a short break, uh, Professor Demmer, and then talk about total war, the escalation okay. of Vietnam. We'll be back mm-hmm. in a moment. Professor Demmer, a few minutes ago, before our break, I said, we'll talk about total war. So did Vietnam, in fact, become a total war, at least at some point? Certainly, mm-hmm. from, from my vantage point, you know, which is probably not different than many Americans, you know, we watch Platoon, Apocalypse Now. It seemed like it was total war, Right. Okay. So in answering this question, I think we have to start out with the acknowledgement that this is absolutely total war for the Vietnamese, right? Interesting, the perspective of their side. Yeah. Right. That this is never a question um, that, uh, especially for the North, right? They're fighting for their independence, for national unity, right? And that um, the Southern South Vietnam has a harder time sort of selling their cause because of the stigma of being a quote, American puppet. Um, But so for those in Vietnam, even uh, their personal convictions aside, the war is so violent, is so widespread, is so inescapable, right? That even if you're just trying to sort of, you know, feed your kids and just get by day to day, the war in terms of a a visceral perspective is total, is something that you can't escape in Vietnam. All pervasive. Right, exactly. From an American perspective, um, the various presidents and LBJ in particular try mightily to not have it be a total war. So LBJ, Wait, LBJ you just uh, share with me the anecdote of him pulling down or unzipping right. his pants. He, so he tried to tamp it down. So LBJ um, refuses to call up the reserves. Um, now, obviously, this gets overshadowed by later decisions to, to increase the numbers so much, but especially uh-huh. early on, LBJ 
what he wants to do um, as a as a man who grew up grew up dirt poor in Texas mm-hmm. is uh, the Great Society, right? Is his his dream? He wants to Medicare, uh, right? Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. Um, he wants to eradicate poverty. That that sort of he is a domestic. His dreams are sort of in domestic. Uh, legislation and so President the, the Biden more, in recent com- uh, press conferences has mentioned that actually the Great Society, right? Yeah, yeah. So he um, sort of the war in Vietnam is the thorn in his side that he doesn't want to does. It's not what he wants to focus on, and increasingly he feels compelled to focus on it. So um, I think certainly it becomes something that I think we could make a legitimate argument that. Uh, it's a total war um, for the United States, but sort of in the direct um, indirect violation of what the U.S. policymakers want, where World War One, World War Two, U.S. officials are selling the war to the American people. There's propaganda agencies, right? They, they really want to drum up support for this war, uh, for those various conflicts in Vietnam. It's sort of the opposite. They want it out of the news. They don't want it. They're sort of uh, are forced to deal with it once it sort of explodes out of the box. Um, but it's not, not how they had hoped it would go. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Professor Demmer, when you say they were forced to deal with it, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if the nomenclature here evolved, changed. Mm-hmm. Was Vietnam at one point a police action? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So um, Korea uh, is the one that famously, yeah, has the police action rate. Um, uh, they do not want to label it a war. Uh, Truman especially refuses to call it a war. Um, with, with Vietnam, I think, uh, I do, I, not that I'm aware of, there wasn't an explicit attempt to avoid the word war, uh, because at first, so, so the, the problem, if you will, um, from U.S. perspective sort of switches. So at first, um, it's that this is a a conflict, uh, an area of the world, a region that U.S. officials argue is vital to U.S. national security, that this is important, right? We need to do this. But most Americans cannot locate Vietnam on a map. They're not sold that this is important, that this is worth it. So at first, U.S. officials are saying, you know, this is Vietnam War. We need to stand up to communism, right? This, So they're kind of uh have to justify it this is before google this is before internet you're literally reading the morning paper and the afternoon paper and whatever yeah okay go ahead and at this point in his um evening reporting like the nightly news Mm -hmm. so there's required to present sort of both sides that required to uh, adhere to certain journalistic practices. And this legislation, you'll no doubt be unsurprised to learn, expires in the late 1980s. And so throughout the course of the Vietnam War, what Americans are getting on the nightly news, regardless of which station they're watching, is pretty much the same. There is no equivalent at that point of, of the extremely partisan news networks we get today, where today, if you turn on different news networks, you could uh, be forgiven for thinking you're watching sort of different planets, right, <laughs> giving the news. Uh, at this point in time, it was much more uniform. The, the, the discourse was, was much narrower. 
It's really interesting. They didn't have the information silos that we have now. You have Fox News, CNN, whatever you want to watch, PBS, and then there's all this on social media. I just want get, to get a sense of numbers. At the height of the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. how many Americans, combatants and non-combatants, lived in Vietnam? What was our presence there? Okay, so... Um... As I mentioned, it is advisors um, throughout the 1950s and into the early 1960s. Um, And then um, the first combat troops are 1965, March of 1965. Uh, The first combat troops arrive in Da Nang. Um, And then the peak in terms of the number of American boots on the ground is 1969, uh, which is the year after the the Tet Offensive, and that's um, 543,000 at one time. Wow. In country, yeah. How many? And that is not private contractors or anyone else. That was a U.S. military personnel. How many Americans died during the Vietnam War? 58,000, roughly. How did it end? How do we get out? Okay, so... Nixon runs on a platform of peace with honor um, in 1968 after the assassination of MLK, Bobby Kennedy, right? Really, really sort of tumultuous year in U.S. domestic politics. Um, uh, He's elected on a peace with honor campaign. Um, His administration um, implements a policy known as Vietnamization, which... um, is an unfortunate name given to the uh, gradual de-escalation of American troops and uh, turning over the majority of the fighting to the Vietnamese. Of course, the Vietnamese are fighting the whole time, right? They can't escape it. That's why it's a terrible name. Um, But this um, Americans uh, do correlate the decrease in number of U.S. troops with the de-escalation of of the war. Um, And so um, in a story that is very, very complicated, uh, we eventually get the Peace of Paris Accords in 1973, January. Um, And this um, does not at all provide a plan for permanent peace. Uh, But what it does do is provide a face-saving means for the last US troops to come home. So in 1973, Americans come home, uh, the prisoners of war come home in Operation Homecoming. That's also part of the agreement. And um, when you say uh, Americans come home in 1973, are you saying en masse or how does this? They live, they yes, live, they so start. By, yeah. From 1969 to 1973, there is a gradual de escalation mm-hmm. that accelerates there at the end. Um, and there is still um, a residual force, uh, but especially compared to those just uh, huge, huge numbers, it's, it's much, much smaller. And then, um, so 1973, once again, is the Peace of Paris Accords, the United States um, leaves, sort of declares the war over. Um, and then um, the North Vietnamese go through a sort of regrouping and consolidating. Is that a unilateral peace. declaration? It's over, we're gone? Or is this? Well, so... Um, Henry Kissinger and Le Duc Tho, um, the North Vietnamese negotiator, they win, they jointly win the um, Nobel Peace Prize for um, 
the Peace of Paris Accord. So um, this is touted as an end to the war. But I think anyone who reads it or anyone sort of really paying attention um, can see the writing on the wall a little bit. Certainly in retrospect, right? Hindsight is 2020. It's quite yeah. obvious. Yeah. Um, and so um, within a few years, um, the um, the North launches a spring offensive in 1975 that is um, wildly is successful. Far this successful. is after we've left. After, yes. So there are still, the U.S. Embassy is still there in the South. There are still about, by that point, I'd say 6,000 Americans in the country, but certainly far, far fewer. Um, between 1973 and 1975, Vietnam is no longer dominating the nightly news. Americans have started to really pivot away from it. Um, and then in April of 1975, um, the North uh, achieves its longtime goal of uh of, uh, in their words, right, liberating some South Vietnamese, yes. say, uh, conquering, right, the South, reuniting the country. Um, of course, that process takes a bit of time, but that that famous uh, photo of the U.S. Embassy, yes, yes. Uh, which actually, so the photo isn't the U.S. Embassy. The same thing was happening at the U.S. Embassy. It's but not? That, no, it's not. I've been full all the years. Street. Yeah, no. It's, it's, it's what, please? What is it? Um, it's about a mile and a half away. Um, so what structure is that in Saigon? It's just a. It's just from what I, I understand not a not a sort of landmark of particular importance, but one that was set up where the helicopters could land. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Wow. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the aftermath, the refugees, and all those that were left behind. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Demmer, I attended school in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1980s. Some of my classmates then had come to America from Vietnam on boats. So you just wrote a book, published a book about this. Please tell us about your book and this experience. Were there hundreds of thousands? When we talk about boats, I'm thinking of North Africans coming to Europe now in the Mediterranean, their boats capsizing, mm -hmm. people dying. Yes. But these boats are crossing the Pacific. It's there's nothing. It's so am I right? They're, they, they're not ahead. at first. They're not at first. Okay. So um their uh, scholars call this uh, migration is so large, uh, it's known as a diaspora, right? A, a sort of major um, leaving of uh, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. So the because of Vietnam's long coastline, uh, the uh, majority of those who come to be known as so-called boat people are Vietnamese. Um, but sort of, if you think in your head, so there's overland routes and, and oceanic routes, and they are, um, your, your description 
um, about sort of the danger of the seagoing journey, the fact that these boats are are not equipped. Um, they fall prey to to pirates, to monsoons, to to sort of all of these these various things is, is absolutely correct. Um, and they land um, first in south um, in Southeast Asia, so in Malaysia, in Indonesia, the Philippines, Hong Kong, um, and then eventually come to the United States. And just to talk numbers for a minute, um, over one million end up resettling in the United States. Um, one million over 1 million in the 20 wow. years after the war. Um, in terms of the, the total numbers of those leaving, um, we don't have precise figures because um, we'll never know how many died in route, right? How many died at sea, how many died um, over land, right? Um, but best guess estimates are, are quite, quite large. So, um, that those 1 million Vietnamese who come eventually to resettle in the United States, some leave Vietnam. And this is what I talk about in my book. Some leave Vietnam first by boat and then come, and some actually end up coming directly from Vietnam to the United States. And these special programs that uh, not many Americans who aren't of Vietnamese ancestry are aware of. Um, but so for the, the exodus out of Indochina, not including those who came directly from Vietnam to the United States, that's probably about one and a half million. Uh, first, uh, would you please just give the title of your book for our listeners, and I'll gladly include the link in the caption of this podcast. Um, sure. It's After Saigon's Fall, Refugees and U.S.-Vietnamese Relations, 1975 to 2000. And it, it was published recently Correct. Yes, just in just in April. Oh, wonderful. Our podcast is timely. Yes. Um, Professor Demmer, of the Vietnamese that are leaving mm -hmm. uh, Vietnam, in a sense, escaping Vietnam, overwhelming majority's desire to come to America? Or, or, or was there since let's get out, let's go to Laos, let's go to Japan or China, whatever. And then later it became part of the plan to cross the ocean and come to America. How did that work? Yes. So um, the United States is um, sort of a, a major, the major sort of destination, I would say, um, that most have in mind, um, especially due to familial ties. So when the United States evacuates in April of 1975, um, about 130,000 Vietnamese uh, evacuate at the same time, along with U.S. military personnel. So that famous picture you know, with the, the helicopter on the rooftop, mm -hmm. the man standing on the top of the rooftop is American, but everyone else in the photo is Vietnamese, right? Which we don't think about. And so wow. um, are we being Americans of non-Vietnamese descent, right? Those who, uh, Vietnamese who have those family ties, right? Of course, that is their their first thought. Um, that means their, their relatives, their kin had already immigrated to the U.S., prior to that so they have a link right and many them. worked alongside u.s military personnel fought alongside u.s military personnel so so they do have these um employment familial connections um france is another major destination given france histor france's historical ties to vietnam um, many as well go to australia um those i think are the the top three um um, destinations, but the vast majority, um, just in terms of numbers, end up coming to the United States. 
I think it's like 63% or something. 63%. In this episode, my interest in our previous conversation was to give some perspective about what's happening now, President Biden's mm-hmm. ending the Afghanistan war. But I just can't help ask these follow-up questions. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get into immigration, but yeah. these people come to America and mm-hmm. just share a little bit. How, how do they fare in here? I mean, I don't mean now. We know that the Vietnamese community has been here for genera- more than you know, probably two generations by now. They're mm-hmm. productive, they've assimilated, and this is home. What happens in the late 70s, early 80s? Right. Yeah. Um, so um, when the Vietnamese um, come to the United States, so at first they have stays in camps in Southeast Asia, uh, and then they come to the United States. And especially in 1975, the United States actually opens up uh, camps in the United States, um, four of them, one in uh, at Fort Pendleton, uh, Fort Chaffney, um, other forts in the United States, other military bases, and then they go into the United States. But sort of speaking broader about this, wait, this sort I don't, of I don't, I don't, I don't follow. What do you mean they open camps? You mean they put these families up in housing in military camps? On um, yes, on military bases, yes, as military. they, because this was sort of a very right sudden. Um, I see. All of a sudden, the United States had all of these people who had evacuated alongside U.S. military personnel um, was working to sort of that the, uh, resettlement apparatus, if you will, mm-hmm. um, having host families, having communities willing to receive them, giving them them training, doing medical checks, right? Sort of all of these sort of logistical um pragmatic things that that happens yeah, as yeah. part of it there was you know the the evacuation was in in great haste and so um it sort of takes time for for this to happen um but so the the vietnamese population in the united states is one of the only ones to my knowledge that the us government at, at least initially intentionally tries to disperse throughout the nation knowing that there uh, Americans generally associate Vietnamese with the war and that most Americans associate wow. Vietnamese as enemies in the war, right? Even though they were allies as well. And so um, obviously it failed, right? We know of um, Little Saigon in Orange County, California, major clusters in the Gulf Coast and um, in the DC area, et cetera. Um, but at first the US government tries to disperse um, them as well. So I think that more than anything gives just the, the slightest glimpse into the many um, difficulties and degradations that, that they faced once they arrived, um, especially as, as time went on and um, they might not have had language skills or, or training or, or even if they had and were sort of held prestigious positions in their former society, they come to the United States and those credentials don't transfer. It's yeah. sort of impossible to capture yeah. the multiplicity of experiences here. Um, but I think given the context that you mentioned earlier of platoon and Rambo and right, these are the things that American, that Hollywood is, is making at this time. Um, Vietnamese are dehumanized to the extent that they are shown and are significantly erased as well. Um, and so I'm sorry, you said significantly erased. An incredibly difficult challenge. Yes. Um, could, you, could you elaborate? You said, did I hear you correctly? You said they were significantly 
deraced or is that is that what you said? Oh, erased. Erased. What, in, what, what do you mean um, by that? So um, from the from the statistics from our census is that what you're referring to? No, 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 no. Um, thank you for prompting me to clarify. From yeah. sort of the general history and thinking about the war. So I think if you talk about the Vietnam War, sort of uh, average American of that generation, right, it's often boiled down to a conflict between the United States and North Vietnam. Um, The South Vietnamese people, South Vietnamese aspirations, the fact that, um, right, people in South Vietnam are American allies, are fighting with the United States, right, to the extent that the South Vietnamese military is ever mentioned, it's caricatured, right? As, as corrupt or lazy, or, you know, basically the Americans came in and we're going to fix it. Right. Um, Sort of this very paternalistic racist way of, of talking about things, pardon me. And so um, for the South Vietnamese, right, they um, do not um, occupy a prominent place in the American mainstream memory of the war, right? Nor are they awarded a place of honor in the history textbooks written in Vietnam after the war, right? So they sort of suffer from this double (laughs) erasure whereby in their adoptive land, the United States, and in their homeland, Vietnam, in both instances, there's not a place where they see their history, their sacrifices, their vision for Vietnam articulated in a nuanced and meaningful way. And so a lot of Vietnamese scholars um, have have sort of, uh, in the critical refugee studies, have have done great work in that area. That's fascinating. So they come here and we don't oblige them. Well, no, oblige is the wrong word. We don't give them the partnership narrative that Mm -hmm. they deserve or they believe deserve. Interesting. Professor Demmer, Again, this gets way into the future, but I want a little bit of clarification on sort of the normalization for a while. I'm not, I haven't followed recently, but for a while, the U.S. and Vietnam had a little bit of a hug fest going on for a few years. And it's sort of normalized, right? Yes. So for about 20 years after the war, the war, um, the United States had no economic or diplomatic relations with Cuba. Or excuse me, with Vietnam, I was going to make the <laughs> comparison that's, that's with another, Cuba, yeah. right? But Cuba is the example that most Americans know. I think Vietnam is, is sort of less, um, less of a, a reference point um, yeah. in the after-war period. And so um, there's this. This is what my book is about: is this 20-year period where relations appear very frozen, very hostile. Um, but the story, of course, is always a bit more complicated. They're negotiating these migration programs. There's a lot of contact and collaboration. Um, but so after that period, it's 1995 when uh, Bill Clinton announces the um, opening of diplomatic relations, opening eventually of a U.S. embassy again in Vietnam. That's big. And, um then thereafter, right, things sort of slowly become yeah. closer. It's not until the early 2000s that Vietnam gets most favored nation status, which is a legal um, distinction for uh, economic relations that, that really opens things up. And so now the United States and Vietnam have relatively close amicable relations and sort of everything that's happening in the South China Sea, um, you know, China as sort of this rising, um, 
you know, potential threat to the United States. Yeah, the United yeah, States of um, very poignantly a few years ago was the first U.S. destroyer had returned to Vietnam and sort of this, um, I believe it was there to do <laughs> work wow. with Agent Orange yeah. uh, cleanup and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the, the narrative has certainly changed dramatically. Um, Let's briefly just touch on that moment in 1995 uh, mm-hmm. where President Clinton I, I assume make some sort of announcement uh, mm-hmm. that we're going to normalize whatever that that term is, proper term is, our relations yes. with Vietnam. Is that a moment of shock for many Americans, for the veterans? I would say, I don't think shock is the right word, but mm-hmm. flashpoint is certainly flashpoint. appropriate. So um, folks sort of know this is coming. Um, the... Bush senior administration started making um, opening overtures. Um, Congressman John Kerry, John McCain, especially um, as both veterans of the war and, and other veterans of the war in Congress had been sending congressional delegations, had been doing a sort of ton of work about this. They actually very um, sort of in a visual way are supporting Clinton as he makes this announcement. It's not just the president it's at the podium. It's the president at the podium with all of these veterans, Vietnam War veterans. Lined up behind them probably. Behind him. Yeah. Um, so it is a moment of great meaning and very different meaning for Vietnam War veterans in the United States of American and Vietnamese descent for different veteran communities, for the Vietnamese American community. Um, But I would say overall, um, it sort of, um, I think one of the phrases that was used at the time was sort of the bark was worse than the bite. Was there sort of, there was this moment, it was 95, so on the eve of an election year. So that always inevitably sort of ramped up criticisms. Yeah. But um, overall, I think by then it, the process had been so long and so obviously coming um, that um, a lot of people had sort of, you know, very strong opinions about it, but it was also in many ways overshadowed. Vietnam had been out of the news and for so long that it sort of stirred something for many, but it wasn't the biggest news story that yeah. does that make sense? <laughs> it does. It does make, yeah, it makes plenty of sense, especially with what's happening now. Let's yeah. take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Demmer as we get into the perspective. So Professor Demmer, Vietnam and Afghanistan are just so different. But as you were educating me, sharing this history, there are a lot of parallels here. So are there any lessons? Well, I think um, certainly in thinking about um, my book, um, one thing that we should be alert to, be wary of perhaps, is the significant gap between American declarations that a war is over and a war actually concluding, right? That that the withdrawal <laughs> of US troops does not, it might end American bloodshed, but it, it does not end the war. Um, and so I would be very surprised in this case if, um, you're right, sort of folks have said this over and over again, right? That the um, those 
in Afghanistan who were there before the United States arrived, who were fighting for different objectives, are going to be fighting for different objectives when the United States leaves, right? And so um, that that is something that we should think about. And also the significant, significant displacement. Um, this is something that's already happening in Afghanistan. The fighting has, has displaced many, many from their homes. Um, but the question I think, um, so in this case, it's not an if question because it's already happening, um, but it is a question of um, morality to some extent of, of obligation. This is the way they talked about it with Vietnam. Um, to what extent does the United States have an obligation to the Afghan people? What is the nature of that obligation? Uh, when does it expire? What, what does that obligation entail, right? These are all things that um, Americans for two decades after the Vietnam War, um, and I and I think in a way that surprises most people, answered in sort of very specific ways. And so as I'm watching this, I'm just curious to see how Americans will think about this and wonder how loud those questions will be in American society, right? Who will be asking those questions? I think the Vietnam War was so, it was inescapable, right? For those living at the time in the United States while it dominated the news. The war in Afghanistan does not dominate the news here has not for a long time. Um, it comes up, you know, at election cycles and flashpoint moments, but um, the fact that we have an all volunteer force, the fact that there, um, I would say is fatigue, but not the, the vitriol anti-war movement that we had before. Um, to what extent is this war that has registered very little for most Americans up until now, to what extent will it register moving forward, especially in this intense, moment where, where immigration uh, issues, refugee issues are so politicized. So unlike the Vietnam War, in the Afghanistan War, we don't have the American experience of fearing draft for our children, for our sons, or for ourselves. So that's mm -hmm. one major difference. Mm -hmm. The second major difference is we can switch the channel or just not follow that thing on Instagram or what's, whatever it is, Parlor, mm -hmm. whatever it is that you follow. We can literally tune it out. It's not that there are three main channels and Walter Cronkite and later whatever, yes. Tom Brokaw come and still talk. And, and that's the only thing on. Mm -hmm. That's And the third difference is you don't have the 58,000 casualties that we had in Vietnam. I don't think we'll see the rooftop sort of moment that we had in Vietnam in Kabul I think they're probably more a bit more negotiated. Yeah. Exactly, I mean, I think especially yeah. that um, it's not so in the Vietnam War as well, it wasn't just the United States. The United States did have a few allies, um, South Korea and others. Um, but in this case in Afghanistan, with NATO has played a pretty prominent presence um, and uh, how the transition of of the different forces and, and sort of the, the diplomacy of the war in Afghanistan uh, is longer, is um, has more international players there sort of articulating prominent voices. And so, um, yes, I think that's, um, you know, the fact that this date now we have September 11th of this year being declared in advance, right? So yeah. it's, um, it's less about a military offensive 
so dramatically changing the status quo as was the case in Vietnam in 1975 and more about um, uh, sort of pre Preemptive might not be the right word, but but a, a decision, a public decision by the United States. Um, yeah. That of course, this is not how policymakers envisioned. Um, <laughs> I think all of this going in Afghanistan that is a is a commonality. But but just taking this slice of it, um, yes, it's has a very different tone. Yeah. Professor Demer, thank you so much for educating me. And our listeners, you're welcome back to the peel.news anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the peel.news. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at the peel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with the peel.news.